Let's take our Bible turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're here in the book of Romans because uh, the Apostle Paul wrote a long letter to the Christians in Rome, and he wanted to explain to him, hey, to them, I'm coming to Rome. I really want to come to Rome, but I want you to know what I'm going to be preaching when I get there. I want to come to Rome, and, and I want to share the gospel. And his letter to Rome, the truth that it explains... It fundamentally changed the world. Uh, many people have said, I was reading a good book by a guy named Richard Halverson. He was the chaplain of the United States Senate for many, many years. He said he believes that the book of Romans is the most important uh, human literature ever written because it is the foundation of what we call Western civilization. And so with that in mind, the book of Romans could not be more important. And I want you to think about this with me for a moment. We're going to put a picture up on the screen of Fiji. Ask people today where they would most like to vi visit a lot of you are going to say, oh, I'd love to go to Fiji someday. It's a paradise. And it is. There are 332 tropical islands, white beaches, alabaster blue waters, waterfalls, dense forests, etc., etc. But gee, I don't know if you knew this or not. If you could have visited Fiji 180 years ago, around 1840, it wasn't a paradise. It was actually more like hell on earth because cannibalistic tribes inhabited the islands. And they were constantly at war, raiding each other and pillaging and enslaving one another. And in the mid-1800s, when Europeans began to kind of colonize the islands, you could trade a musket worth about $7 for a man or a woman. Now, and the stories of cannibalism on the islands were legendary throughout Europe. But if you visited Fiji 40 years later, around 1880, you could not buy a man or a woman for $7 million. And you're like, well, what happened in 40 years? Well, there was a great missionary movement that took hold in Scotland and England in the mid-1800s. And so many people, because there was so much commerce going on in Fiji, they kind of set their sights on winning the people to Christ in the Fiji Islands. And over a period of just a few years, over 1,200 churches were planted on the Fiji Islands. It's incredible. And this, within one generation, this island nation was radically transformed one life at a time by what? How do you explain something like that? Our title today is The Transforming Power of the Gospel. Okay. I know some of you here today might be thinking, yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, 19th century cannibals. Yeah, they do need transformation. But we're in 21st century America and saying, I don't need transformation. I just need a, a little bit of help. You know, I don't need theology. I just need a little bit of therapy. I don't need to be transformed. I just need a little bit of help here and there. Okay. I need a Christianity that's going to, you know, kind of ease my disappointments and, and soothe my sorrows and calm my fears. If you just tell me how much God loves loves me, how good I am, how blessed I am, that would be really helpful. But all this other stuff about needing to be transformed and changed because of my depravity and my iniquity and things like that, I don't really need that. That's not Christianity, though. The message that transforms lives, generations, and nations is not therapeutic. The Bible says that we are a wonderfully made creation, as we saw in that video a moment ago, but we have gone terribly, terribly wrong. We're fundamentally damaged in the very depths of our soul. That's what the Bible calls iniquity. And because of our iniquity, because of our damagedness, we rebel against God. And by our very nature, we, we go astray. We, we defy God. We, we sin. And as sinners, as rebels, we are doomed to a fate which, out of which we cannot come. And that is eternal separation from God. It's hell. 
and our sinful condition. We need salvation. We need rescue. We need to be delivered from this. We don't need a, a moral example to, for you know, in Jesus. We don't need a, a you know, good life teaching. We don't need a life coach. We need a Savior. And Jesus offers salvation to us because He alone was able to go to the cross and deliver it and has the power to offer it. And so we read in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, please underline this in your Bible, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The gospel. And we throw that word around a lot. It means good news, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to kind of, I want to kind of frame this today and think about this. When we, when we, hear, we hear that phrase, I am, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I don't know about you, but I, I start getting a little bit tense, a little bit anxious, you know, because I, when I think about talking about the gospel, you know, sharing the gospel with somebody, you know, a friend, family, uh, family or coworker, yeah, you know, you get kind of tense, you get kind of anxious. And Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God. And so I'm going to talk to you about three characteristics of this gospel message that I hope are going to really encourage you. And maybe there will be a more of a, a boldness that will come out of all of us, you know, beginning with me. Three characteristics of the gospel. Number one, it has an oversized power, okay? Uh, kind of like a Wolverine. There's just a lot more power there than you might think, all right? Because he says, it is the power of God. So he's not ashamed of it. Why would he even be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel in the city of Rome. Well, Rome had enormous power, culture, beautiful art, and then grand architecture. You think about the Roman Colosseum, Nero's Palace, etc., etc. Expert engineering. When you think about the aqueducts and things like that and their sanitation. And in Rome, there were universities, there were world-class scholars, there were philosophers, there were world leaders. And the gospel message... Center, centers around a poor Jewish carpenter who was crucified by the Roman military. And the Romans didn't like the Jews, and crucifixion was the lowest and worst form of execution given to any criminal. And who would dare to propose that a poor Jew from a conquered nation who was crucified has power? And not just any power, but power over death, and the grave, power to grant eternal life. And this eternal life is even given to, to slaves and, and to criminals. But again, if you look back at Bible history, that is precisely why that message is so believable. I mean, think with me for a moment. The Egyptian empire, you know, the, the glory and power of Egypt, and God is going to completely overthrow this ancient, powerful nation. And what does he use to do it? A shepherd with a stick. I mean, it's the stick. You know, he puts the stick in the Nile River, one of the great rivers of the world, and it turns to blood. He holds the stick out over the Red Sea, and it just splits open, and all the people walk through. And, all right? and you know, there's nothing glorious or, or, you know, or uh, inspiring about a stick, you know, and a few generations later, 
You know, the, the world's first weapon of mass destruction, this giant whose lineage goes back to the, the sons of God. He's one of the Nephilim. Right? He's a supernatural, supercharged weapon of mass destruction named Goliath. He's covered head to toe in armor. And what does God do again to defeat this incredibly strong and powerful weapon? He sends out a shepherd with a rock, you know? That's all it is. It's just a rock. And he strikes him on the head and he's and it's over. The battle's over. And you think about the Lord Jesus. You know, there's a crowd of 5,000 men and their families. 20 or 25,000 people. A small city. And they're all hungry. And what does he take to feed them? All right. He gets five. He has five loaves of bread. I got a little package of hot dog buns here, right? He takes some hot dog buns from a boy's lunch and he starts breaking it and, and sending it around. And this goes on for hours and hours and hours. 20, 25,000 people are fed with a few loaves of bread, a couple of hot dog buns, right? It's incredible. It really is. And the gospel message, you know, you think about it. It's just a few simple, ordinary words, isn't it? But these ordinary words carry enormous power in them because there's a spiritual power, there's an unseen power behind them. And when the gospel is spoken or read, someone believes these simple words and they say, Lord, I need you. It unleashes incredible power. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but with the Holy Spirit and power. And that word power in the Greek, the word dunamis, it's all through your New Testament. And it's a Bible word that is used over and over again to describe the power that came through Jesus as he did miracles. For example, Luke chapter 6, he was surrounded by a large crowd. A great number of people came from all around the region. They had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Even those who were troubled with evil spirits were cured. The whole crowd were trying to touch him with their hands, for power was going out from him. Isn't that incredible? That's that word dunamis again. Supernatural miracle working power has never stopped going out from Jesus. Now, where is that power found? In the gospel, Paul tells us. When the gospel is preached or spoken in conversation, the power of God is activated. And now, what's happening in Rome? A disgraced, disavowed Jewish Pharisee who now is a tent maker by trade. <clears throat> he is the world's leading spokesperson for the Jew, uh, crucified Jewish carpenter. <laughs> All right? It's pretty incredible. And you think about the Apostle Paul. Pardon me. He was imprisoned in Philippi. He was chased out of Thessalonica. He was smuggled out of Berea. He survived an assassination plot in Damascus. He was laughed at in Athens and he was stoned in Lystra. All these great cities. And now he's going to go to Rome to preach the same message. It's almost humorous. It just defies all human logic and reason. A sophisticated city like Rome, some might be afraid to f proclaim salvation. Eternal life can be found in this crucified Jew who was the Son of God. But Paul had supreme confidence in what he was going to be speaking. And he was eager to challenge Roman learning and philosophy 
And what gave him this confidence? He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? What's he talking about? The sticks and the stones and you know, things like that. For since in the wisdom of God, the world, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who, who believe. What does he mean by that? That in, with all of our intellectual power and prowess, we miss God. You know, we, we just don't see him. We, don't, we're, we refuse to believe. And he says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You know, you think about sitting down with someone and just talking about these things. I don't know about you. I get so worked up. Like, I got to say everything perfectly. I got to do this just right. Because if I don't, I'm going to mess it up and they're not going to get it. That's really off the table completely. Why? Because it's the power of God in these few simple words. When we just say, hey, God loves you. God wants a relationship with you. Jesus died for you. You're a sinner. You need to be forgiven of your sins. And Jesus wants to give you eternal life if you'll put your faith in him, if you'll trust him, if you'll just say, Lord, I need you. He will hear and if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's just simple, ordinary words. But they are packed with soul-transforming power. How? It's just consistent with everything that God has ever done. I love this quote from Tony Evans. He said this, If we're ashamed to share the gospel, it's because we do not understand the power embedded in it. Man, so, so true. So first of all, yeah, there's an oversized power in the gospel. It's just, it's, just, it's just surprising. It's really remarkable. Number two, there's just an overwhelming generosity in the gospel. Because Paul says it's for the salvation of everyone who believes. The Jew first, the Gentile second. Wow. Back when I was uh, in my early days as a youth pastor, I was at a conference and uh, I heard a, an evangelist. His name was Ken Freeman. And he was a great speaker. I was like, man, we got to get him to Borger. And so we spent a lot of money and we set up a, a, like a, a conference, so to speak, a youth conference. And we're going to have him come to our church. And there was this huge publicity push. And we bought a bunch of pizza, getting kids to come out with pizza, things like that. And we arranged for him to do some, you know, drug-free assemblies at the high schools. And he invited kids to come up to the church. This is over when I was at FBC. And the auditorium at FBC was, was packed with hundreds of students that night. And his worship band got up there. They were really good. And man, the kids were kind of getting into it. And then it's time for Ken to get up and speak. And I was like, all right, here we go. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. And he just kind of starts rambling. And I distinctly remember thinking to myself, man, where's he going with this? You know? And he started talking about growing up in an abusive home. Both his parents were drug addicts and alcoholics. And there wasn't any form or any logic to anything he was saying. He was just kind of telling the kids random facts about his life. And I just thought, man, this is like shaping up to be like the worst message I've ever heard. And then he goes, he starts telling the story about one night, his mom was passed out drunk and he's about 12 years old and his mom's laying on the floor. He went to the kitchen and uh, I'm, I'm just telling you what he said, okay? And he got a butcher knife and he 
put the knife up to his mom's throat. And he said, I was just sitting there just thinking about, I'm just fantasizing about what it would be like to cut my mom's throat. I hated my mom so much. And I was like, oh, I am so fired. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I can't believe how bad this is going. He's telling this story about wanting to kill his mother with a butcher knife. You know, and I just thought, well, you know, I'm still young. Maybe I can get a job in the oil field, you know, something like that. I, I, but my days as youth pastor are over. You're like, are you the guy that brought that crazy dude to speak? And he said, yeah, I, I'm the one. And so then he had spoken maybe 10 minutes. And uh, he just looked up in the balcony. He was full of kids. And he said, you know what? He said, y'all need Jesus. Y'all need to get saved. And he looked down and he said, you know what? Y'all need to get saved. He said, man, come up here. And so the worship man was like, okay. You know, they'd only spoken 10 minutes. And most of it was about wanting to kill his mother. And so he just came up. They came up and they started playing music. He said, y'all need to get saved. Y'all need to get saved. And I mean, I just was like, oh my goodness, this is awful. You know, this is really, really terrible. I couldn't believe my eyes. Kids started coming down by the dozens asking Christ to be their savior that day. You see, we have to be really careful not to overlook the profound when it's simple. People need to be saved. People need to be saved. That word salvation, the Apostle Paul used there, that word is used like 13 times in the book of Romans, 50 times in your New Testament. There's this message that's ringing out. People need to be saved. And the word salvation was an important part of the culture in Paul's day because the Romans thought of themselves as the saviors of the world. Like conquering a backward little nation was like an act of generosity in their twisted way of thinking. Every land that Rome conquered, they brought their art, their music, their building projects, their sanitation, their roads, their agriculture. And in the minds of the politicians, the Senate and the emperors, Rome was like the pinnacle of human potential. They believed that Rome was the savior of mankind, to save man from, from ignorance, disease, starvation, poverty, and anarchy, just like the world leaders who met last week in Davos, Switzerland. And Paul clearly understood that if Rome was the best that man could do, then man is doomed. For all of Rome's military and economic power, their art, their music, literature, engineering, Rome was filled with every kind of depravity and debauchery, violence, corruption, idolatry, and suicide. One of the leading causes of death in ancient Rome was suicide. Isn't that interesting, ladies and gentlemen, who live in America in 2021? What do we need to be saved from? Four things stand out in the Word of God. The first one is slavery to sin. You and I need to be saved from slavery to sin. See, in Rome, when they defeated a nation, the prisoners of war were often given a choice. Death in the moment or slavery for a lifetime. And this practice was seen as an act of mercy, an evidence of Roman virtue. But again, it was a twisted way of thinking. Slavery was degrading. It was dehumanizing. In many ways, death would have been preferable if you were a slave who was sent to the mines or something like that, or a gladiator to the, to the arena. But the Bible often uses this slavery imagery because everyone understood how dehumanizing slavery was. And God wants you and I to open up our eyes to how degrading and dehumanizing and how depraved sin always is. And the Bible says that Christ has purchased 
us out of the slave market of sin. He has redeemed us at the price of his own blood. And he can break the chains. He can set you free. He can rescue you. Why? Because Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Romans 6.6 6 says, We know this. Whatever we used to be with our old sinful ways has been nailed to his cross. Some of you need to hear that today. Whatever you used to be, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, if you've believed this gospel, that is what you used to be. That is not who you are now. You need to know that. You need to believe that. Act as if that's true. Because he says, our entire record of sin has been canceled and we no longer have to bow down to sin's power. You may be here today bowing down to sin's power. You need to ask yourself this question. Have I believed the gospel? Have I trusted Jesus to be my Savior and forgive my sins? Because I do need to be saved from the slave market of sin. Number two is the fear of death. Death is humanity's ultimate enemy. But Christ has defeated that enemy. To be saved is to be delivered from the ultimate consequences of sin, which is the clutches of death. Hebrews 2 says, Jesus became a man like us. He died as we must die. And through his death, he destroyed the power of the devil who has the power of death. I know we all have a healthy fear of death, but I just wonder if that's like, if maybe that might be an obsession for you. That you live in this haunting fear of death. And if that's true for you today, have you believed the gospel? Have you believed the gospel message? Because as Jesus did this to make us free from the fear of death, we no longer need to be chained to this fear. He holds out a hope to anyone who asks Jesus to save that a day will come when our bodies will be rescued from the grave, raised out of the ground, and recreated to be like Christ's heavenly body because Jesus saves. Number three is this. The emptiness of life. There's a guy named Eckhart Tolle. You might have heard, I don't know if you heard this name or not, but he's one of America's most respected spiritual voices right now. He's made popular because he's on Oprah Winfrey quite a bit a few years ago. In one of his books, The Power of Now, A Guide to Spiritual Enlightenment, he said this, Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. That is so profound, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> he said, states the Heart Sutra, one of the best known ancient Buddhist texts. And the essence of all things is emptiness. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, that, the only empty thing there is Eckhart Tolle. I mean, that is just so bad. That is just so bad. But in America, we're just, we're just lapping this kind of stuff up. Oh, that's so good. That's so wise. Oprah's like, oh, Eckhart, that's amazing. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's dumb. It's dumb. A feeling of emptiness now haunts so many people. And they're trying to say this is a good thing. No. And a feeling of emptiness may be haunting you here today. But contrary to Eckhart and Siddhartha, the Buddha, emptiness is not a good place to be. In Colossians, Paul says, Christ has died that you might have fullness. Fullness. And emptiness leads to hopelessness. And hopelessness always leads to self-destruction. We need to be saved from the emptiness and the sense of futility that sin causes to plague us. 1 Peter 1, Peter said, You know that God paid a ransom to save you. From what? 
the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. All the generations before you have their bad ideas about God, their bad ideas about life. He said, you inherited emptiness from all that. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, but the precious blood of Christ paid the price to free you from emptiness. And number four, the wrath of God. The wrath of God. It feels kind of old and outdated, doesn't it? But it's actually quite contemporary to America because in our age of inclusivity and the brotherhood of man, everybody falls into one category. Sinner. Sinner. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one, the Bible tells us. And the wrath of God is His righteous anger and His justice against the defiance and the debauchery that so many human beings choose. And as Paul tells us here, there is salvation for everyone who believes it, but only those who believe. And everyone responds to the gospel. Everyone. You're either going to believe it during your lifetime or you're going to reject it during your lifetime. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another. Those who believe, those who reject. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And he will say to those on his left who reject, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Which is a good transition to the final characteristic of the gospel message is overpowering change. He says, For in the gospel... A righteousness from God is revealed. And it's a righteousness that is by faith. There's a lot of talk today in our culture about denial. You hear about election deniers, Holocaust deniers, climate change deniers. If you have a friend or a family member who can't see a problem, we say, you're in denial. You know, men are the worst, by the way. You know, a uh, guy my age, you know, steps in front of the mirror looks in the mirror, you know, kind of pulls the stomach in, sticks the chest out, looks at his wife, and he goes, you're welcome, you know? <laughs> or it's time to move a sofa, you know, and a bunch of young guys are in the room, you kind of barge in there, I'll get that, you know, and then you have to spend two weeks in physical therapy after that, you know? The greatest reality, this is so tragic, the greatest reality in all of human history is that so many people are living every day their daily life in denial of the greatest historical reality of all of human history. The thousands of years of human history, there's one great reality. They're judgment deniers. Judgment deniers. They deny the objective reality that one day our Creator, He will hold us accountable. Hebrews 9, 27, everyone must die once and after that to be judged by God. Time and time again, the Bible is explicitly clear the day will come. Everyone will be judged. Everyone will stand before God and be held accountable for the content of their life. Romans 14, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written in the prophet Isaiah, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. And so it brings up the question, 
How could any of us ever hope to stand before God and be righteous? The key word in Romans, by the way, the whole letter is this word righteousness. Some form of the word righteousness appears 40 different times in this letter. A righteousness from God is not, it's not a righteousness any of, you could, any of us could, could ever achieve in our own power, our own strength. But it is offered because in 2 Corinthians, Paul said this, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Did you catch that little, the, the wording there is so important. Not so that we might just have the righteousness of God, but that we might become the righteousness of God. And I've said this before. People are like, do you understand what that means? I'm not sure that I fully do. It's incredible. It's important to know that this righteousness, it's not moral, it's legal. Paul is not saying that God turns sinners and rebels into righteous people who always do the right things. No, he says, you are not, you, uh, you're not made right, you are declared right. What he means is that people are innocent in God's court of justice before him when they put their faith in Christ. There's a great theologian named William Barclay who said this, Righteousness does not mean that God makes the sinner a good man. It, mean that, it means that God treats the sinner as if he had never been a sinner at all. You see, the group, through the gospel, in just a moment's time, God unleashes an epic power to change a destiny. And suddenly, when a person says, Lord, I need you. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. When they are willing to admit this in the depths of their soul, God erases the record of your sins and he declares you innocent before him. And then when that day comes, you stand before God. You will stand there completely perfect and worthy. And God says, why would I allow you into my kingdom? You would say, Lord, there's nothing good about me, but I put my full faith and trust in your son, what he did for me on the cross. And he would say, enter in. And I'm sure many people do not think that this idea of righteousness is all that relevant in our day and time. It does feel like something that theologians would have cared about hundreds of years ago in dusty old books. But think about this. So many people today are walking around every day in what I would call the numbness of unworthiness. We see it in skyrocketing rates of anxiety, depression, addiction, deaths of despair. So many people are just flat, no affect, disengaged, checked out, checked out from their wife, their husband, family, church, everything. This can go on for years, using all sorts of chemicals and other things to try to cope with it. You see, this unworthiness is a lingering sense of deficiency, and it just clings to you, and it follows you like a shadow, and it says you're not worthy of love, you're not worthy of success, you're not worthy of friendship, you're not worthy of respect. These are all things that we really, really need as human beings. It usually begins with parents who are Overly critical and uninvolved, distant or absent. And then childhood experiences with taunting and bullying and ostracism. And it's very likely a person who feels unworthy is going to marry someone who treats them as if they are and makes it even worse. And in light of this, 
Righteousness. Righteousness. It's the most important truth in the world. The glorious king of this universe is willing to make you worthy of his presence. Worthy of his very home. Worthy of his very heart. Romans 5.17 If because of one man's trespass, that was Adam, death reigned through that one, much more surely will those who receive God's overflowing grace and the free gift of righteousness reign as kings in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So we need to cling to that, hold on to that. If you've had this numbness of unworthiness, that the day will come, the kingdom doors will open. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you've said, Lord, I need you. That the kingdom will open to you and you will reign as king. So righteousness, it's something you and I need to remind ourselves of constantly. We feel depressed. We feel despair, discouragement, defeat. I am righteous in Christ. God loves me. God accepts me. And he makes me worthy. And he calls me his own. Paul explains that this gift of righteousness, it's a result of our faith. I can't earn it. I, can't, I can never deserve it. But worthiness is given to me. Righteousness is granted to me in response to simple faith. That's how powerful the gospel message is. And so I want to conclude with that today. Uh, we were in Albuquerque for a family vacation years ago, probably 10 or 12 years ago, something like that. And uh, I saw this church, this Calvary Chapel. I was like, man, I've never gone to a Calvary Chapel. There are a lot of Calvary chapels all around. And I go in on a Sunday morning, and uh, all the rest of my family stayed in the hotel because I'm the only righteous person in our family. <laughs> And so I went to church on a Sunday morning and I came home and I just, I told Melanie, I said, oh my goodness. I think I might've shared this with y'all before. It was the most amazing church. I mean, I just loved it. And the pastor, uh, he's a big church, a really amazing church. Pastor was a guy named Skip Heitzig. Well, then a few years later, I'm listening to the radio, radio program as we're driving. And it said, hey, our guest today is Skip Heitzig. And he starts telling his story. And it goes something like this. Back in the early 1970s, you know, he was, a, you know, in college, he was in San Diego, and he was kind of a seeker, really wanting some spiritual truth. And at that time, and I know some of you, I'm dating myself a little bit, but man, back in the 70s, you know, astral projection and, you know, hallucinations, dreams, UFOs, stuff like that. It's all really, really big, the paranormal. It was really, really big. And so he was really heavy into the paranormal. And he'd use some psychedelic drugs and other things trying to achieve an astral projection, trying to find out what's out there. So he was knew there was something out there. One Saturday afternoon, he's just sitting around his apartment or his dorm room with nothing to do, and he's drinking beer, and Billy Graham comes on TV. And his dad, he grew up in a semi-Catholic home, and his dad had always said, you know, hey, I'm Catholic, but I do have a lot of respect for Billy Graham because he's a man of integrity. And so he thought, well, I'll just listen to Billy Graham. So he's sitting there sipping a beer, listening to Billy Graham on a Saturday afternoon with nothing to do. And it comes to the point in the message where Billy Graham says, you need to be saved. <laughs> you need to put your faith in Jesus as your Savior. And so Skip Heitzig said he was just cut to the heart. You know, he knew that was true. Just all of a sudden, he says, like a flash of light. I just knew it was true. This is the power of the gospel. And I want you to think about that with me for a moment. 
You got a guy who's been dabbling in the paranormal, sitting there drinking a beer on a Saturday afternoon, listening on a blurry TV, but he hears the message of the gospel and it cuts him to the heart. He gets down there on, his, on, on one knee in front of his coffee table and he asks Jesus to be his savior. He's like, and then, you know, then after that, I don't, you know, if you ever watched the Billy Graham crusade back in the day, he'd always say, now if you ask Jesus to be your heart, in, into your heart, to be your savior, you need to go find you a church. And so he kind of goes to the phone book and there's this church called Calvary Chapel. And he goes there and there's this guy named Chuck Smith who's, you know, teaching the Bible verse by verse, word by word, chapter by chapter. He had never seen anything like that before. So he goes to Calvary Chapel. He just loves it. When he graduates from college, he moves to Albuquerque and uh, there was no church. There's no Calvary Chapel church. And he liked the way that they studied the Bible. Bible back at Calvary Chapel. So he and his wife decided to start a little Bible study. And this little Bible study meets in their apartment, and then this Bible study gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And one day he says, how do y'all feel about just like turning this into a church and meeting on Sunday mornings? And they said, we would love that. And so they did that. And uh, this last Easter, uh, they had their Easter service. They had 22,000 people at the University of New Mexico Stadium. Today, Calvary Chapel, Albuquerque, reaches 14,000 people a week on four campuses in Albuquerque and Santa Fe. An amazing story. And where did it all begin? With a guy who had a little bit of buzz, drinking beer, watching Billy Graham on TV on a Saturday. It's incredible, isn't it? There's so much power in the gospel message. It's like this rock. You know, it's simple and ordinary, but in the hands of God, the power is epic, okay? And it's not up to you or me to share this gospel with great skill, with great oratory, with great power, even great eloquence or even boldness. Our only objective is to share the gospel. The power of the gospel. It always begins with this admission. Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. So the worship team is going to come up this evening or this, this morning. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me today. If you would, just do me the honor of bowing your head and closing your eyes for just a couple of minutes. I want us to reflect upon what we've kind of talked about today. We're going to sing this song. Lord, I need you. And if you're here today, you've never trusted Jesus to be your Savior. Today could be that day. Today could be the day you might say, Lord Jesus, I know. It's clear to me now. I am a sinner. One day I will stand before you and I'll have to give an account for my life. And so, Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of my sins and I trust you to be my Savior. Those are, those, those are, the, those are the simplest way to put it. And it's so profound. And it's, it's so life-changing for you just to be able to go into the depth of your heart and just say, Lord, I need you. I, I see it now. I've never seen it before, but there's been an emptiness to my life. There's been a confusion to my life. Lord, I need you. And the Lord honors that with this epic, life-changing power where he erases your sins and says you are righteous in Christ. Maybe you're here today and you've believed the gospel, but maybe you've forgotten the gospel. What I mean by that is that you've been living your life with a sense of independence. You've been living your life in your own strength, your own cleverness, your own ingenuity. You've been doing it your own way. And the central message of the gospel is, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. My faith is in you and you alone. Not just for my salvation, but for my very life, for my marriage, for my home, for my finances, for everything. Lord, I need you. That's the gospel.
And so I want us to go before the Lord this morning. I'll be quiet for just a moment. And I just want to ask you to just kind of do some business with God today as it pertains to the gospel. As it pertains to the gospel. And uh, I'll pray for us after another moment or two. Lord, I just love you so much today. I'm so grateful, Father, that there are so many of us here today who can point to that day when your gospel was shared with us, Father, and then your power was brought to bear upon our hearts and minds so that we could see it and embrace it and love you, Jesus, as we had never loved you before. And we just thank you for that day. And Lord, I just ask if there's anybody here today who hasn't trusted you, who has not believed this gospel, trusted in this gospel, Lord, I pray that today would be the day, Lord Jesus, they would trust you. Today would be that day. And Father, I just pray for all of us here in this room, Father, that the, the, the cry of our heart would always be that gospel cry. Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you so much. And so, Father, I pray we all would leave this room today with that being the attitude of our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for your glory today. Amen. Amen.